Richard nailed the chicken into this cutting board with the blunt oh, end of the yeah, axe yeah, yeah. and then turned it around and in time with the music as I was jumping around him playing this electric guitar he would like hack the chicken to pieces. Hello, I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. I need to get better. Please make me better. I want to get better. Better. Better acquainted with you. Today we're getting better acquainted with Russell. Hello, Russell. Hello, Dave. The first question that I ask everybody is how do you know me? I know you through a mutual friend called Richard. I went to art college in Winchester with Richard and I hated it there. And I found Richard and he saved my life and stopped me from going mental. When we both left art college in Winchester and went up kind of separate ways. We stayed in touch and Richard started putting on a festival called Fresh yeah. in Bracknell and he put on his first Fresh festival which I came along to check out and you were in a band called the Middle Class Bastards. That's right. Who had this lovely family orientated <laughs> performance art day. Started off with your acoustic duo with the words... I want to fuck you like a Nazi. <laughs> and it was like, yeah, this is great. This is so funny. As all the parents covered their children's ears. Yeah. And... I don't think we were quite aware that it would be a family crowd. We didn't know that there would be old ladies and children <laughs> in the crowd. It was good. I'd like to think we would have still made the same decision if we'd have known what the audience were going to be. But I don't know. We might have been We might have been a little bit more... Uh... I'll just stroke you like a Nazi. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to make it clear, out of context, the show wasn't pro-Nazi. Uh, <laughs> and... You stayed that night, didn't you? So yeah, we went yeah. off like, I remember driving off with you after the fresh had finished, we all piled into cars, kind of crazy, exciting, hot, everyone's a bit drunk, zooming off to Richard's house mm. and having a, a fun party sort of thing. Thinking you were in it, you were, well, this is going to, I don't know what, what you're thinking of this. My first impressions of you were, you're an incredibly cool person, but not in an intimidating way. Oh. Didn't, it was like, I like being around him, but he, he doesn't think he's better than me. He just likes to oh. be having fun and... Yeah. Okay, that's, that's quite a nice thing to say. Thank you. Yeah, well, I mean... <laughs> I, I don't know. think I ever would class myself as cool, but thank you. Well, it's, it's a bit weird to class yourself as cool. I live in Brighton, and so many people do class themselves as cool. And uh, I always thought cool was a bit of an insult word. Like, at, at school, the cool crowd were always the wankers that you didn't want to hang around with. I know so. what you mean. I guess yeah. when I was growing up, that was the case. Yeah. But also, within my friendship group, we had a different definition of cool mm. so yeah i know what you mean cool mm. is a tricky word and it's something that i'm always i don't know i was chasing a lot when i was a young younger person trying to be cool but now i'm quite th- comfortable in the idea that, that that i don't have to be cool to it yeah i think there's there's a lot of pressure and there probably still is to be cool and you know i think things like saved by the bell and who was that seven up guy fido dido oh yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. and it was like yeah be cool yeah, you don't want to be like Screech. You want to be like Zack because he gets <laughs> Kelly. Look at AC Slater. He gets Lisa. But you don't. And the annoying thing is, is the fact that I look like Screech doesn't didn't help that either. So I don't know. Maybe I'm just bitter. Maybe I wish I was part of the cool crowd, but uh, could never quite do it. I think what's cool when you're a teenager changes quite significantly as well. So people don't necessarily notice that they've become cool by accident what what i think is the coolest quality is kind of 
comfortableness with yourself, they're the really cool people. Like when you think of the funds, right? The reason that the funds was cool is because he he was comfortable with who he was, and then he was kind of centered in his universe, and it didn't really matter what, what he did. Whereas when you're a teenager, the people you think are cool are the people who are really posing. But when you get older, it's the people who aren't posing. I always, I always wonder, cool. like, what happened to the cool, like the cool crowd at school. The only person I know, I grew up in Dubai. And uh, so, and the nature of an expatriate community in Dubai, people are always coming and going. It's a very short-lived thing. And most of my childhood friends have scattered all around the globe in Australia and Sweden and Canada and places like that. And and it's quite difficult to kind of keep track of what they're all doing. But I did love it the other day when I was reading the Metro and one of the guys from the cool crowd at Dubai College does the gossip section in the Metro. You so, grew up in Dubai. When did you move to the UK? Uh, well, I I grew up in Andover, which is ah, a right. very kind of insular town in Hampshire that's got lots of industrial estates and squaddy barracks on the outskirts and things. And when I was six, I moved out to Dubai because my dad worked for Sony. Sony. I don't know how to say it. No, but I don't know. So Sony. I don't Sony. Know. <laughs> and I was there for eight years to the day and moved back just as I was about to start my GCSE years. So it's all a bit like, oh, I hate England. Oh, the weather's horrible. People are weird. They like Oasis and they've all got curtains. You didn't like Oasis? No, I, I tried. <laughs> and I thought, okay, it's a, it's a little bit like smoking when you're a teenager. Because, you know, you think, oh, well, oh, this is the big thing. Everyone does it. Oh, I'll give it a go. And, you know, smoking was a bit... Oh, not really that impressed by it. Oasis was kind of the same. I yeah, thought Blur I, were a bit more interesting. I liked both. I'm in the, the weird camp of oh, liking both. both. I did like Oasis, but then I smoked, so obviously I was, oh. I was susceptible. <laughs> you said that Richard saved your life. What do you mean? Well, I, I, was, I was at art school and I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And I went to art school thinking, oh yeah, this would be really good. You know, this is going to be lots of interesting people, really uh, like, you know, a big like melting pot of ideas and it's going to be a really excellent opportunity. And I just felt the people there were just really, really lazy. And they'd come in, they'd sign in at 11, go down the pub, come back, sign in at two and then fuck off. And they wouldn't do any work. And I always remember we had this big like assessment-y thing where we all had to produce this bit of work and talk about it and this girl literally got two wire coat hangers and like bent them in half and like intertwined them and she came up with this absolute garbage spiel about like yes it's this is showing the decay of of society as we move into the twin in the 21st century and and all of the tutors and lecturers were just like stroking their chins going yeah it's a very strong piece. And I was thinking, this is actually taking the piss. And like the 10% of people that got there at nine and worked really hard to actually kind of push themselves artistically, experiment with new media and build up a good oeuvre, that's a good word, of, of work, <laughs> you know, got no recognition at all. We went on a trip to Barcelona and I was like, bloody hell, like a big art trip. And I was like, all oh, these people are wankers. And I was really ill to boot. And me and Richard were like, I guess the two weirdos with no mates. So they stuck us in a room together. And it was like, yeah, finally, it's someone else who doesn't really like all this stuff. So we just kind of put our heads together and tried to derail lots of art college. And we came up with this 
art movement called improvementism. Ah, yes. You told me about this the first time we met, I think. Yeah. I, was, it was, I thought it was amazing. <laughs> what, what was improvementism? Uh, the concept of improvementism was kind of... It was intended to just kind of mainly ruffle feathers and try to knock art off his pedestal a little bit. And the idea was that art isn't something that's all like, oh, it's incredible, but it is just intrinsically a piece of canvas covered in paint or a block of clay that's hardened or something like that. And if you purchase that, it's your ownership and you can do with it what you want. So if you decide to improve it like you would a house or a car that you've bought, which you're doing up or something like that, then you should be able to do the same with art. So we went round and bought pieces of people's art that we thought we could maybe make better at art college and we did like a big talk about it and things like that and it was quite good we tried to like get famous artists to give us work that we could improve for them and things like that so Richard always I think in in the kind of work I've seen him do when he's been making art he always likes to pop bubbles and it sounds like improvementism was a was one of those kind of things where it's popping this big bubble of self-belief I remember I was with Richard at university because that's where I know him from and we were walking past some people doing like a student loans protest and like shouting on the megaphone Richard was like can I have the mic and then he was like he got the mic and he's like I want more money because my daddy and mummy are paying for me already and like, he totally like satirized their entire cause but people didn't 100% understand that it was satire and some people were cheering and it was quite an awkward moment <laughs> I kind of enjoyed that then I and then he gave me the microphone and I was like you shouldn't just be standing around, you should do something. The next thing I knew, we were on the top of the, the building. We went and did a sit-in in the Chancellor's <laughs> hallway, and then we were on the top of the building, and someone was passing me a mobile phone, and I was doing a, a, an interview with a local radio station, and I just we'd just been walking along, and we really were just... We only got involved because it was a laugh. Like, we, we were completely and utterly, like... I'm not saying I disagreed with their cause, yeah. but I was... You know, we weren't we weren't in on it. I think the thing about Richard, yeah. for people that don't know him, he's a very calm and very gentle and pleasant character. Yeah. And I think that that is very... Not, not misleading, but it lulls you into a false yes. sense that things aren't... You know, that you think, oh, I'm going to go and it's just going to be a really nice, calm... Yeah cultured evening because this is Richard and he's he looks a little bit he, he, he dresses like a 1940s gentleman he, he looks a little bit like Prince Harry and Prince William combined in yeah, one person that's very good description but I the amount of kind of weird messes I've got myself in with him yeah me I, too raves in Bristol where people <laughs> are, not me or him but the people we were with decided to take a whole lot of ketamine and we ended up having to look after them all evening and then got bored of it and went to the B-52s room at this illegal <laughs> rave. What? Oh, what a great thing at a rave, a B-52s room. And oh, what? God, it's like... And you guys did a, a live art piece, which I saw, which I thought was fantastic. And it was in, like, a hardcore gay club or something, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah, and it's like... That was it. just incredible. I, I remember... Yeah, it was a really, really, really hardcore gay club. Yeah. Like, there wasn't men and women's toilets. There was just one giant toilet room. And the toilet doors were such that they were saloon doors on each cubicle that stopped just above the toilet. (laughs) So whoever had to use the toilet, you could either see their bum or you would see their entire body if they were sitting on the toilet, except for their heads. (laughs) And... Oh, I remember there was a girl I was with who was like, oh, I'm really scared of going to the toilet. So I was like, it's fine. There's men in there, but it's just like a normal toilet. And I walked in and there was a guy (laughs) cleaning semen out of his bum into the sink. And I was thinking, this is a very, very hardcore game. I know. 
I mean, I went so, there on my own, and you guys weren't there. So I was just like <laughs> sitting around, like walking around, looking at some like hardcore gay pornography art, inverted covers. It was like videos of people cutting themselves oh, and yeah. all sorts oh, of fucking like that, shit yeah. like that. And I was just I was thinking, hmm, I wonder when they're going to get here and I wonder what <laughs> the hell is going to happen tonight. But when, when the show happened, it was a real breath of fresh air, I thought, because it kind of sent up the... Uh, the whole place, in a way, you guys kind of came out in these balaclavas, doing this with this crazy old time music, and you smashed up a chicken, <laughs> and marbles came out of it. That was like magic. I properly wasn't expecting like beautiful things to come out of a dead chicken carcass. I did really like it. I was, I, was, I remember when we first did that, and Richard was like, "We need, I need to find some roadkill," and he drove, <laughs> and he drove around, like where he lived. Oh, this is he drove around Wokingham for like two hours trying to find <laughs> roadkill and when he couldn't he then went to butchers and tried to get a whole chicken like with all the bits still on and he couldn't do that so we just had to buy like a, a Tesco's chicken and I mean, most people would just be like oh I'd like it with the giblets or without but he actually filled it full of marbles and eggs <laughs> yeah that's right eggs and feathers that. yeah yeah <laughs> the things that we get into with Richard no always. that was really good though I loved it you had a little mini steam train that you filled up like made made race around the middle of a dance floor it was a dance floor that you were on and everyone sort of crowded around and I like, had this weird little circular experience well, what I thought was really strange about that is, uh, for, firstly, if you type my name into YouTube, that is the only thing that comes up is a video of me and Richard doing that. <laughs> okay, which I thought think is really strange. But the whole premise of it was Richard told this art festival that he would have a headlining piece of performance art for this thing, and he said, "Do you want to help me with it?" And I said, "Yeah, yeah." And then we both forgot about it, and I went on holiday. And he came back. I came back on the Thursday, and the thing was on the Saturday. So we got together on Friday, and Richard was just like. Bring all, all the cool stuff that you've got, and I was like, okay, well, what? Like, uh, I've got this World War One hat. Uh, I've got this this Casio guitar the with guitar, the tape deck in it. That was good. And so I just brought these things together, and we just came up with this like random thing that used all the cool things. It was really had. prop heavy as well. It, like, it you didn't... must have taken loads of stuff there to the venue. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I just it, and we just put together this stupid thing that didn't mean anything about anything. No, 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 it didn't. And but it was great. But and everyone afterwards like I really like that and loads of people thought it was like about the coming of age of a boy like how men go through these stages where they start off playing with toys and then it gets through they go through like their teenage years and that was where they put down to hacking apart the chicken and lots of yeah smashing up things and then it ended with like drinking beer and dancing to disco music see I can see that but the way I interpreted it was kind of the end of empire because you were like going in with these kind of there was slightly an empire theme to it like steam trains and the, the original music was like did, did, did. it was like the arches theme or something wasn't the yeah, 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 yeah. But it was like that and it was like it was all very like and you drink you made tea didn't you and you had tea and then in the end you were like thrash thrash metal and uh, and yeah Foster's like <laughs> Australian beer and I like, and like after you've smashed up this chicken and then yeah I was like that's the end of you know that's this is the uh, dumbing down or something of society or something I don't know yeah, but, so, I mean so part, but part you of read me, into it what you like yeah I mean part, part of me liked that and didn't like that I, I like the fact I mean that is one good thing about art that people can read into it different things but then part of me just felt like I was a massive like we just sat down and come up with this gibberish and everyone kind of lapped it up in, in this kind of performance art world, like in a, oh, yeah, yeah, it's a very strong piece. And I was like, 
what this is ridiculous yeah, this well, is I think, but it was anything. the only thing that was accessible that was there in my view like everything else that was there was really impossible to understand whereas yours there was it was funny there was funny bits and it was visceral because there was like hacking up a chicken and it was something you wouldn't normally see and it was kind of it was interesting rather than just disturbing. Like it wasn't actually disturbing seeing a chicken carcass hacked, like smashed mm. up. I think it was smashed up with a hammer. No, no, it was a little wood axe. Oh, that's right, an axe. Yeah, yeah it's probably yeah, a little fuck. wood axe. Yeah. <laughs> fuck. Richard nailed the chicken into this cutting board with the blunt oh, end of the axe, yeah, yeah, yeah. and then turned it around. And in time with the music, as I was jumping around him playing this electric guitar he would like hack the chicken to pieces and the idea is because we'd encourage the audience to come in quite closely as he hacked apart the chicken they would get kind of bits of chicken and egg and marbles the marbles were the only thing that really I think you know there was other stuff there that was disgusting but there so was the inside of the carcass so the only thing that really I noticed was the marbles coming out (laughs) and again marbles that's quite a kind of traditional British thing to play there was all I think it's I mean maybe the only reason I have those meanings is just because the kind of stuff that Richard's got lying around in his in his garage are traditional British things because he's kind of a traditional British person in some ways definitely definitely and so the other question that I ask people that's a standard question is what do you do now? Right now, the thing that occupies a majority of my time is teaching. This is my third year as a science teacher at a school in Crawley and it's very, very, very hard work and yeah, it, it occupies. For those people who are teachers, you'll know exactly about this and the people that, who aren't teachers will be like what don't they get massive summer holidays and this is true but you go from this state of having as much free time as you like six weeks of free time all of a sudden going into this job that just completely takes over your life and just you constantly constantly working during term time like there's there's no so either a drought or a famine or yeah exactly yeah, yeah. It's like, oh it just wears you out so I'm getting there. I, the third year, you'd think I'm totally going to, you know, it's going to get easier. And it definitely hasn't got easier. Do you enjoy it? Sometimes. Sometimes you think, yeah, this is really cool. And this is why I've done it. And other times you think, bloody hell, what is the point? After I went to art school and decided that it was a little bit of a, I felt a bit of a waste of time. I switched to oceanography and I was really passionate about that and did my time at uni and then went on and worked as an oceanographer. Yeah. And a lot of people think, what is an oceanographer? Is it someone that takes photos of the ocean? I was going out and putting instrumentation in the water to measure waves, tides, currents. We'd install weather stations and things and analyse this data. And after a while, I just got a bit I wasn't really doing any science, I was a bit like a skivvy for these other people who were just like, I want to find this out, go and stick this in. And I wasn't really doing any science, I was just downloading the data and sending it off to people. I switched to teaching as I thought I'd like to look back at my life and think, okay, what have I achieved with this? Have I done something positive? And as an oceanographer, I felt that the end result was I was helping a bridge being built or I'd help a port being extended. And in one case, I was working on helping a gas terminal being built on the mouth of the River Congo. And I thought, this is probably something I would be protesting about, and I'm almost like a cog in the machine of this. And then I was like, you try and justify it to yourself, well, it's really good they're building this because at the moment they burn off all the gas which contributes to climate change, and this terminal is a way of packaging it 
and transporting it around the world so that gas that ordinarily would be waste would be used. But then you think, well, you know, it's on the mouth of the River Congo, which is not really a place you want giant industrial complexes. Yeah, really. yeah, I can, yeah there's so, a bit of a moral quandary. Yes, yeah. so, and then I was like, well, somewhere like, you know, the region of the Congo, they could probably have got round having to do an environmental impact assessment by bribing their way around the various legal holes. And so I was quite pleased that the company had decided to do everything above board yeah. and contact us to do an environmental impact assessment. But even so, you know, you can't help but feel like a bit of a, like I said, a cog in the machine. So I thought I'd rather look back on my life and think, oh, instead of, oh, brilliant, I've helped these bridges be built, look back and gone, okay, this is good. I've like educated kids about science and the issues surrounding science in the world. And you chose science rather than art? Yeah, mainly because I've always had a bit of a foot in both of them and there is a massive deficit of physics teachers. I think that the statistic is only one school in four has a physics specialist and so the government paid me basically to become a physics teacher. they've got loads of people queuing up for art teaching, lots yeah. of failed artists. That, that, there, is, there is that aspect <coughs> as well, yeah, there's, not really a de- there's not really a deficit of art teachers unfortunately. No. So I, try, I try and incorporate a bit of art into my lessons as much as possible. That probably helped. A lot of the time if you've got teachers who are teaching science and they're really into science, that can sometimes make them a little bit unaware of how other people kind of engage with what they're saying. So that's when you get people who don't come down to your level and talk mm. to you about it like it makes sense to you. I mean, I think the best science teachers I had at school taught science, you know, like it was a real, alive thing. But sometimes it can be taught very... People think that science isn't relevant to them a lot mm. of the time, which is a bit insane, really, when you actually think about how much our lives are dependent on science now yeah people can certainly be put off by science i i wish i'd done more science at school and i so i did physics universes and art i did at university oh, for wow. a year which was physics teachers teaching us the physics without the maths really so just oh, like wow. all the ideas like einstein and um some astronomy and, and all stuff like that so yeah. that sounds cool it was it was yeah. really cool I wish I'd done more of it. That was the only, the only, that was the only subject I ever got first in, because I could, I could write an arty physics essay, and they'd love it. Whereas I could, if I wrote a theatre studies essay that was a bit arty, they didn't like it because it was not taking the subject seriously. Whereas the physics teachers didn't have that kind of insecurity about their subject. All oh, right. You know, because okay. they, they, they want it to look all kind of cool and interesting. Whereas people in the arts often tr- dry stuff out, I think, because they, they want to, they want to be taken seriously. There's always this big thing in in the humanities generally where they want to be taken as seriously as the sciences. Yeah, I guess, because a lot of the time I think maybe the importance or the relevance of the science is kind of maybe a bit more apparent as like why we need to know about, Yeah. I don't know, some obscure facet of history or something. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. No, I mean, but, well, I think that's the other thing is I remember my, my mate Tim who studied physics at uni, and he was a, a friend of mine in Richards, uh, he still is. I remember him saying, you guys... I feel sorry for you because you never can get 100% in, in any of your essays because it's all a matter of opinion, whereas i just got to get the maths right and then, <laughs> I, and then I can get 100%, no problem. And it is a much more hard to prove that what you're saying is worthy in mm. the arts because it is a matter of opinion. And when you're teaching to, this, to the children in school, you, you, they, they can answer this answer is right and this answer is wrong. 
at your level of physics, like at A level physics. Mm. Whereas I think when it gets really to the top, theoretical physics. Now Tim's got a PhD. I'm sure he's dealing in, in work that is hard to get a first in. Yeah, yeah well, I mean, the thing about physics is, I should probably say that I was quite put off by my school science experience when I actually did my GCSE, so much so that I didn't continue any of the sciences onto A-level. And uh, I did maths and geography and art, and I was able to get onto this oceanography course with the maths and the geography, so I've kind of ended up teaching physics like via the back route, I guess almost. Because I mean, that's I guess that's what oceanography means. That it's like geography, isn't it? But it's ocean rather than ge whatever geo means. The earth. <laughs> ah, there you yeah, go. Yeah, geo, yeah. Geo. Yeah, you're yeah. helpful having you around. Yeah, yeah. There you go. <laughs> I like to use these conversations as kind of Wikipedia for myself. Oceanography. There's different types. So you can have like a biological oceanographer, is marine biology. You have chemical oceanographer that looks at the chemicals in the water and things. I was a physical oceanographer, so I looked at like waves, tides, and turbulence and things like that. You get people that look at the modelling, like not like sexy ladies, but um, trying to model climate change <laughs> and how currents are going to affect things and put all that together, build like a mini earth on their computer and see how things plan out. You get hydrographers that map the seafloor. You get marine geologists. I was also a bit of a sedimentologist, which is one you say to a lady, hey, I'm a sedimentologist. They love it. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, I had to do a lot of work by putting fluorescent sand out on beaches and letting it wash around and then coming and taking little samples and scanning them with UV lights and counting the pink grains to get an idea of where the sand had gone. It sounds fun until the counting. Yeah, well, the fortunately, boring. fortunately, I was colourblind, which, so that meant that it didn't come down to like scientific scrutiny. Who, who, who did you get to count the pink grains? Oh, this guy that's red-green colourblind. Okay, I don't think that really stands up. So I got out of the counting. I was like, yes. So you just collected it and someone else counted it? Yeah. Fantastic. Well, well I think in the end they got it automated with like this camera that went... And that like, sounds like the kind of thing automation should be used for. Definitely, yeah. They found the computer was a bit thick, though, if it had two grains t next to each other. I didn't know if it was one big grain. Well, I, I stupid can, machine we, that the human eye would probably be <laughs> worse at working out which is one grain or two yeah I'm sorry this is uh, whenever a conversation descends into sediment analysis it's not a good conversation I don't know so I, I, get over I, this, I, I don't know I think that one of the things I think that is interesting talking to various people is just that so everyone knows what an artist does or an actor does. Everyone knows about their life because we hear all these interviews with them talking about, oh, yeah, yeah, I do this, I do that. You know, we all know that they've got to go to auditions and that it's really hard for them and we should all feel big sympathy with their hard lives. We don't really hear about, like, jobs that are unusual or that people don't do. So people don't know what oceanographers are. So it is kind of, it's boring for you, of course, because that's all you know you know it all it's really boring it's like if I was to, t to talk about being a library assistant that would be boring for me but um, <laughs> I could probably make it entertaining though for other people and I think you are so I wouldn't worry about that okay so you were out on boats when you were doing a show with me like, yeah were you out for a while the most exotic place I went to was Aberdeen um, <laughs> which was which is very disappointing because uh, you kind of think yeah I'm gonna travel the world and most of the time, they just sent me to God that awful port towns where it's just like industrial wastelands <laughs> as far as the eye can see and you have to live in these places. That was one thing I hated about it is they'd give you, 
maybe two, three days notice and you'd have to drop your life and get everything ready and just drive to this random place and live there until the job was done. And I, I ended up spending a total of two months in one year living in Barrow in Furness um, on the edge of the Lake District. Yeah, I know, um, I know the place. And I ended up actually quite, you know, quite liking the place and it got so you know in the end we became because we stood out like sore thumbs because of our accents and and uh, it was, people would hear you talk and they go hey what you doing what what i can't do northern accent no but, i, uh, I can't know, either i yeah, live there I I just, i'll insult anyone from who's listening from up north but they're just like yeah what's your voice and you'd be like yeah i'm an oceanographer and they go you what you'd be like i'm an oceanographer you what? We got one girl to do five year watts before we had to switch to marine biologist, and then then we just made out that we were looking at dolphins in Morecambe Bay, and she was like, "Oh, okay, that's really cool." Dolphins in Morecambe Bay. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you're so sensitive if you're studying dolphins. Yeah. So you say, and if it was a guy, you just said that you were looking at some sharks, and they were like, "Oh, fair dudes, oh, you're looking at sharks." Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sharks for the guys, dolphins for the girls. That's how you impre- if you say yeah, so I'm actually doing a Counting. water a <laughs> water quality analysis to see where the uh, where the water board should install their sewage outlet. Yeah, my mum actually thought at the time that I was out on a boat counting turds as they went past, unlike <laughs> a tally. And I was like, no, it's a little bit more sophisticated than that, mum, but not much more. But yeah. So were you out at sea for a while then? Like, um, well, were you it, out it, away it, from land? It te- it tended to be like. Somewhere like somewhere like Morecambe Bay, it was you always had to do a tidal cycle. So if you were measuring anything, it would have to be from a from a high tide through back down to a low tide and back up again. So that always took about thirteen and a half hours. And then if you had setting up and taking everything off the boat time, which was an hour at each end of that, and then sometimes it took four hours to drive to site. Yeah, I I have done twenty three hour days before, which Fuck. were particularly nasty and only once I went out on a really big boat and that was the worst thing ever why it was okay (laughs) it was this a lot of things that happen in oceanography are done by idiots and I'm sure this happens in loads of industry every industry every industry anyway these people wanted me to take samples of sediment off of Folkestone and I our office was on Hailing Island which is near Portsmouth so if you imagine this the south coast of England Folkestone is at the far eastern end. Hailing Island, smack in the middle. I said, okay, where's the boat you want us to use? It's in Plymouth, which is at the far west. And I said, okay, can it pick us up on the way past? No. Why not? (laughs) It just can't. What a shit excuse. Anyway, so we get prepared to drive down to Plymouth to get on this boat that's going to take four days to get to Folkestone. In the meantime, I said, have you checked the weather report? They said, yes. I said, you are aware that it's Force 8 gales, and as such, we're not going to be able to use this two-ton piece of equipment, which is going to be swinging around on the back deck, <laughs> potentially killing everyone. They said, we'd like you to try. So, four days of hell in this tiny cabin in the bowels of the ship, in between the galley, and for some reason... The, the ship's cook only knew how to fry bacon within an inch of its life <laughs> and the engine room so at all times of the day my cabin was full of 
bacon fumes and engine fumes. Oh God. I had one porthole that just went light, dark, light, <laughs> dark. And when trying to sleep, it was I was just being thrown around from one side of my bunk to the other. Uh, and I had no seasick tablets. It's like, if people have never been seasick, it's like having a hangover, like a four day hangover. Oh God. It was, it was absolute hell. That sounds horrible. So, well, there you go. There you go. Wait, that's a... Uh... But this this can lead on into one of the most embarrassing moments of my life. If you want to go there, that would so, cool. so like, I'd, I'd like that. You'd like to... Cause... That would offset some of the more like serious stuff. Okay, okay. Um, I'm a bit worried about who might be listening to well, this it's now. It's up okay. to you. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll go for it and see it, because it is... For, for people that know me, I have quite a low shame factor, and I don't get embarrassed easily. When you're out on this hell boat for four days with nothing to do and you're feeling really ill and there's no you you know it's not going to abate anytime soon and my manager at the time who was with me on the boat was like okay we need to use this time productively I'd like you to write all the risk assessments so imagine then having to stare at a screen and do work while feeling very hungover in the room that's constantly moving and full of fumes I felt quite sick so anyway, I thought three days in, I need to sort this out. I don't know what I'm going to do. I need to just get some positive endorphins in my brain and yeah. that might cure this. I thought, I'm going to have a massive wank. Yeah. Okay, so what I'm going to do. So I'm there, supposed to be writing my risk assessments in my cabin. And I thought, I'll knock one out really quickly on my bed and see if that helps. Partway through the uh, masturbatory process, there's a knock, 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 enter. How are you getting on with those risks? Oh, as my manager walks in, and catches me mid-wank. I then just, I, what do you do? I just looked at him and thought I should maybe justify why I was doing this. Jesus. And I said, I feel really ill. <laughs> that's, that's really weird. Though. Which is a really yeah. weird thing to say yeah. when someone catches you wanking. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I feel really horny would have made more sense. It's like, it's a cat, it makes sense. I can understand why you wanted to have a wank. I, I totally can understand. Yeah. I would have probably done the same thing. But it does sound weird when you, when, yeah, you're caught there and you're just like, I feel really ill. <laughs> Luckily, it was one of those things of what happens on survey stays on survey. But oh, Did, was it a he or a she? It was a he. That is better. I was like, this is my cabin. Surely <laughs> you should knock and wait for me to go. Come, like John yeah. Luke Picard or something. Oh, they, they made the mistake. They, they did. I, I bet they they wished that they'd done that. Yeah, and, oh, <laughs> I, was, I just I just felt like I mean it was hard enough trying to have a wank in this in this horrible cabin which is completely devoid of any erotic material whatsoever you know and so there we go yeah i i mean uh, the, the first episode of this series starts off with me telling a, a masturbation story so i'm not okay. the only I'm one that has like lowered the tone yeah. no 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 yeah yeah that's right well, I, I think you know masturbation is part of life um <laughs> <laughs> When you were doing the fresh stuff, I think the second time I met you, you were doing Dr. Keyboards. Oh, uh, yeah. What was Dr. Keyboards? How do you feel about Dr. Keyboards now? You don't sound like you're very positive well, about well, Dr. Keyboards. Well, I think Dr. Keyboard was... Okay, I should probably explain the kind of lead-up to Dr. Keyboard. I used to be, when I lived in Andover, in a punk band called The Riots, and we were the only punk band in the entire, like, I don't know, immediate area because the denizens of Andover seem to love either Oasis-style bands or they particularly loved new metal. And so us being like a, a punk band 
you know, like slightly kind of arty, I guess, weird subject matter made us stand out like a bit of a sore thumb. Anyway, our, our drummer was beaten up after a show and was punched in the face and he fell backwards and hit his head off a lamppost, fracturing his skull. Fuck. Really nasty. Because he was so hammered, he didn't realise he fractured his skull. Went to a house party <laughs> and was on the front of someone's Volkswagen Beetle as it was being driven down the street. The person slammed their brakes on. He flew off, landed on his head oh, again, stood up and then fainted, hitting his head for a third oh, time. Fuck. Okay. Oh, fuck. When we phoned the ambulance, they dismissed him as a drunk teenager and sent oh, him home. Shit. Three days continued of him constantly blacking out and passing out all over the place before he went for a, a brain scan and it turned out he'd fractured his skull and had extensive scarring to the back of his brain. I think to this day he's got no sense of smell and he can pick up one of his legs by the hair because for some reason this sensation in one of his legs has been vastly reduced. So anyways, as a drummer, he couldn't drum more than five minutes before he passed out. <laughs> so we had to find something to do on stage to occupy the the punters while he had a bit of a rest <laughs> and so i had this kind of bank of cheesy 80s casio keyboards that which i'd kind of collected from charity shops and i would just entertain people by playing silly demos and songs and stupid noises and things and in the end it got to the stage where our shows were more about the keyboards than they were about our music and we'd go and play and people were just like in the audience going, keyboards, play the keyboards. And I was like, right, you know, this is ridiculous. So the idea behind Dr. Keyboards was I was going to give the audience so much keyboard of these horrible little keyboards that it would completely overwhelm them and then they'd appreciate our music so much more. So I devised this character who wore a balaclava it's the first bit of the balaclava I guess that morphed partly into what you and Richard did because you had balaclavas yeah yeah. exactly yeah so and the other idea was it was supposed to be a bit of a disguise so they didn't realise it was me in the band so yeah I had pants balaclava a lab coat and I had like a single turntable uh, which I got from again from a charity shop and I used to put on these awful records and like rap over them and play the keyboards and it was it was atrocious and I used to like gyrate on people in the audience my you're right right said Fred was one of the ones that you like sampled or played it at like half speed and like did like insane metal rap over it yeah I did um it's it's a really weird thing if you get if anyone has bought right said Fred's I'm too sexy single on seven inch the reverse side the instrumental without them singing that is what an instrumental is yeah we're, <laughs> we're you, learning lots of yeah, definitions yeah, today yeah. If you slow that down from 45 to 33, it fits Rage Against the Machine's bomb track perfectly. So I would rap bomb track over this. And I had megaphones and I'd run around and I'd shout in people's faces. And it was just, it was just a bit of a, an awful, it was really awful. It was completely unrehearsed and it was just shit. It was really awful. You think it was shit? I really enjoyed it. I mean, it was very abrasive. It's the kind of thing that I imagine when you did it, like two people in the audience at the end were like, that's the best thing I've ever seen. And the rest of them were like, "Ah, what's happened to us? What did that man do? The nature of it, it's almost a little bit Andy Kaufman-y. Yeah, it was. It was really The the, the worse, if the audience didn't get it, 
for me that just made it an Fun. even better show because yeah. it was just made it even more awful and well you did it at the fresh festival you know and again it was a similar kind of audience to what we did when we did the middle class bastards yeah. and so it was uh, i remember it having a mixed response from the audience and you just loving it That's you always find the people that aren't enjoying it and make sure you focus your attention on, well them. on them yeah which is which is good one of one of my favorite things i did i played this pub and i'd hidden a pint glass half full of apple juice in the toilet and mid-show I went into the loo and made sure I stayed in there long enough so they thought I'd weed and I came out carrying this pint glass as if I'd weeded it. <laughs> I then proceeded to down this apple juice which looked like weed and everyone thought but halfway through I choked and I ended up coughing this pint of apple juice all over the audience and there was definitely people in the audience who were like oh my god this this twat has definitely just spat his own piss all over me and I was a bit like oh it's like a kind of cartoon throbbing gristle what you were up to it kind of had that kind of it, it was like throbbing gristle were quite serious about it whereas you were like just making insane messes for a laugh I liked that mm, so but yeah it kind of I don't know I, I didn't like it but it was one of these things that people were like, if if you were putting on a show and you couldn't find an extra support band, it would fill up yeah. fill twenty minutes, and it would do this, and it, you know, and it, I think it kind of peaked with the artistic director of the Bracknell Art Centre booking me to do this Arts Council Delegates of Europe's annual conference, <laughs> and this thing. If you like, you could. No one could stand more than twenty minutes of this, and he booked me for four hours, and it was just hell. I ended up having to do like a wedding DJ set, like dressed just like this, and just playing the songs. And people took it seriously. And were just so instead of like rapping and singing along over the songs, I just played them normally, and everyone was like, "Yeah, do the Batman, do the Batman," and things. I just took it. It's just awful. So is that the death of Dr. Keyboard? Well, the death was, because I used to do it ages ago before people had camera phones. Yeah. I, you know, this is like going back 10 years and things. Yeah. I did it a couple of years ago and saw a video of it and it was just really embarrassing. I just felt like this is, I just feel like a wanker. So yeah, I, <laughs> I try not to do Dr. Keyboard. You stopped studying art when you finished Art Foundation with Richard mm. and you did science. But you've always been making stuff personally, if you classify being a musician as an artist, and I do. One of the things I gathered from going to art college is like, okay, what, what am I paying these tuition fees for? I can still paint, I can still visit art galleries, and I can still have people tell me that my art is shit, just like the lecturers, <laughs> <laughs> you know, without having to come out of it 20 grand in debt and yeah. basically be qualified to be one of those people in the Tate that goes, excuse me, can you step behind the line? Or becoming an art teacher. So I thought I can still get what I need to artistically without having to subscribe to a course, if you like, yeah. if you know what I mean. So. And you're currently in a punk band, aren't you, called Caution Horses? Yep. Yeah. Which I absolutely love. I own both your records, I think. If you've had any after that, then I don't own them yet. No, no, no. We, we're, we're a bit... We're, we're quite a lazy band, unfortunately. But they can, they're really nicely DIY. Do you design the artwork, or do you all design it? Or? Oh, yeah. I mean, um, I make it, and the idea is that it's... 
it's easy to make but also it looks good and Stencil, so yeah we do it? lots Stencil of stencils yeah. and, and like origami inserts and things yeah i design it and email it off and go what do people think of this and andy or james who are the uh, bassist and drummer respectively go well i think that needs a bit of tweak and then they'll tweak it and send it back we play a bit of email tennis and then we come up with something that we all like i booked your band for the first gig that my my old band apples for everyone did and you like blew everybody away. Like we were all like, "Fuck!" Because we had like you were our support act, and then we had to go on after, and we're like, we were watching you going, "Fuck, they're really good." And we've got to go on. I think actually it turned out quite well because we were so hyped up by it that we actually played quite a good gig. One of our better ones. We played a lot of bad ones, but uh, there's thousands of you. Yeah, there was a lot of us. Mm. I, I think at the beginning it was kind of a crazy. Um, like I don't know, like I I imagine the early Velvet Underground gigs where they were doing that Andy Warhol mm, Masters yeah. of whatever it was tour where they had this crazy stuff going on. The best of the early days felt like that, like just loads of people on stage. No one knows what's going to happen next. Yeah, okay. Sometimes we played songs that were rubbish, uh, <laughs> but 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 we 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 did it with a bit of style and panache, and then the next song would be good and. And then and anyway, so, one person's yeah. rubbish is another person's good, isn't it? But we, but we uh, it, we never got kind of further than that initial peg. But you guys, what we liked about you, I think, because a few few members of that band really like punk music, me being one of them. But what was really nice is that you weren't just like so often you see a punk band and they're just a mess and they think that being a mess is the point. Mm. Whereas you guys are really tight musically, I, I thought, we thought, just really in it, like the drums and the bass, just so in it, I'm not, and the guitar as well. Mm, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I mean, I'm, I must say, one thing about the band is that Andy and James are incredible musicians, yeah. and I'm not being self-deprecating at all, but I, I, well, I taught myself to play guitar, and I spent ages with chord books, learning the chords, and then when I found out about power chords, I was like, this is brilliant. What a fuck this chord book. And I've got power chords and I, I can't play solos. I oh. can't do anything like See, that. I can't play power chords. That's so. my that's my eternal pain. I can't I haven't yet mastered the bar chord or the power oh. chord. It's I'm so close sometimes, but so but no, what's so, get there. Yeah, but I mean it's really great because I could write this song in my room with power chords and go in and go, This is what I've written to Andy and James and they will just add all this incredibleness to it. And things I never would have thought of, and weird syncopations, and stop-starty bits, and I'm like, whoa, oh my god, this is oh, this is really good. Oh. But you all bring so. something good, I think. That's the, that's what works. If you're right, and they're the thing that makes it musically tight, then you bring a lot of kind of. You're a very good frontman, actually, which is something that I appreciate. And I'm slightly jealous of when I see good front people, but oh, that, that was what I like with the Doctor Keyboard stuff. You're not afraid of kind of challenging the audience, but with Caution Horses, it's kind of challenging them to come with you. Whereas mm. Doctor Keyboard is very much challenging them to, to to be scared of you. Yeah. How long have you been together now? We've been together far too long. I think that we played our first gig in uh, with a slightly different lineup, but that would have been back in December 2006. Wow. So we are quite a, an old band yeah we've unfortunately live in different places and so trying to get together to write songs and practice and do gigs we're kind of restrained to doing weekends and things like that you sort of do a few a year or something like that or you have little periods where you do a lot mm. and then you sort of go off the radar again yeah you've all got proper jobs yeah so i mean what we try and do is kind of save up our gigs for foreign countries one of the things that i always wanted to do 
was to take my music on tour because I've seen so many lesser bands go on tour and I'm like this is incredible how how did this band aren't very good and I, you know I'm not like we're incredible but there were definitely bands that I thought you know you guys aren't really doing anything new or interesting or anything special but, and you're able to do these big tours abroad how how is this and so to be able for our band to do that was just absolutely incredible and I think the problem is in England everyone is in a band yeah every every <laughs> pillar you're right every pillar that can play an E chord is in a band and claim that their band is brilliant and it's so I mean for if anything people music going public of England are spoiled for choice there's too much bands yeah. And it's so <laughs> difficult to separate the wheat from the chaff. A lot the of them don't go them. out anyway. People aren't going out to see live bands. Not uh, not unsigned bands. They'll pay loads of money to go and see a person who's already got loads of money and doesn't need their, their cash. Mm. But they won't come out to see open mic nights. And I don't blame them because, I mean, I don't know how many gigs you've played like this, but um, in my experience, a lot of the time you're booked by a promoter and they're not thinking about the whole night. They're not programming a, an entire evening. Like the, the gig we're going to see tonight, mm. that sounds great because it sounds like all of the bands fit with each other yes, when you were describing yes. them. That's great. And so you can enjoy that. But if you've got just a, a load of different bands that are just disparate sound, some of them are good, some of them aren't, you, you know, it's not programmed so that the best one's at the end and all that sort of yeah. thing. It's just, ah. Oh. Yeah, but I think bad promoters don't help. I mean, one thing, yeah. I mean, I should say, we, we've we met this other band called Fashoda Crisis from uh, South End in Essex and we musically gelled with them like that we could tell that we had, like, had that in common we didn't really know anything else and they emailed me saying hi can you give us a gig in Brighton and I said I tell you what do you fancy pooling our resources and organising a European tour and they said yeah fuck the UK tour let's totally do that and we never met them and we organised a two week tour with them that did I think something like 12 countries wow. in 13 days and it was such hard work, but we never met them. And we t they turned up to play the, our first gig in Brighton together before we went off to play Prague, I think was our, <laughs> our, our gig after that. And we were like, geez, I hope they're not all psychos and things. Yeah, and yeah, I think yeah. they said the comment, oh, we're really pleased that, you know, when we all finally met that you weren't like wearing another woman's skin or something, <laughs> something like that. And I was like, yeah, that would have been a bit difficult. Yeah, definitely, that would have been weird. Yeah, so. Uh, <laughs> But no, so that and that first tour was just absolutely fantastic. But it worked out. Oh, there's a bit of hammering going. There's some on. interesting hammering going on from a neighbour. This is the the way of life. Mm. Yeah. Um, so yeah, th and that was just brilliant. We were like, I can't, I can't believe we managed to do it, but it was really expensive. We ended up getting fined in Austria, and the van broke down in the middle of rural Hungary. And did you get audiences? Yeah, I mean, the audiences. I think the difference is, is the audiences that we got. Even if they were small, I think one time we were ridiculously late, and I think we played to like 15 people in this in this town called Hradec Kralova, which is in the northern Czech Republic. But those people, just I've never seen a crowd of 15 people being taking it in turns to crowd surf each other. It was just brilliant, and you think these people, even though there's 15 of them, they are so. Like, I, I guess like really receptive to what we're doing really grateful for us having made the effort to go all the way there and it's one of those things would you rather play to like thousands of people who don't really get it or 15 people that really you know give everything to their gig yeah yeah and yeah so I mean sometimes you know we didn't play to very big audiences because we are quite specialist I think we're quite a bit of a niche you are quite niche yeah. because you've you've got kind of 
lyrics that are unusual for the sound that you make they're quite kind of fun and challenging occasionally to the kind of straight punk people do you know what I mean like mm. completely straight down the line straight edge I'm a punk and I just want purest punk you guys are a bit too fun and a bit too kind of interesting I think in some ways for that but I think there is an audience for you I'd like, like, I like mean, people to find find you I think you're a very good band a promoter once described us as too loud for the indie kids too clever for the punk kids yeah and I think that's I think that's quite a good I, I, I did quite like that because that's a good yeah I think unfortunately what does happen is the result is that the punk kids and the indie kids don't like us <laughs> so we end up playing to this weird Venn diagram of the few people yeah. that you know get well, I think that was the thing do. that the people in my band including me that really enjoyed your gig I mean it's because we're into punk music and we're also into music this indie-ish and my, my mate Jack's really into the Mountain Goats and the Neutral Milk Hotel mm. and stuff like that like the indie good indie yeah. like, I'm, like I'm into the Magnetic Fields and stuff like that and that that can cross over quite well with punk, with the kind of yeah, lyrics yeah. you guys have got. My favourite song that you guys have got is well, the one about Kira Knightley. What's it called? The, oh, what's heat. it called? Heat. heat. That's yes, right, yes. right, right. You play around a lot with celebrity culture and kind of tabloid iconography. If we're going to be Newsnight yeah, review I, about it, I, yeah, <laughs> I, I, yeah. I mean, it's it's a it's a tr it's a tricky thing. What do you write a song about? And there's so many songs about love, and there's so many. I, I mean, I do feel kind of quite angry about a lot of political issues and things which I'm seeing going on but I've just seen so many like Fugazi fans and Fugazi are a fantastic band yeah. that put the things that they sing about they strongly believe in they put their money where their mouth is and you know they, they live their lyrics but you see so many Fugazi fans that are massive Fugazi you know they you know they love them they're like, oh, I love Fugazi but the lyrics and you know what the impact of those and the, the issues that they're dealing with I've just completely missed them and so you think okay if Fugazi are putting all this effort into making these this song to make people aware about some injustice in the world yet it's having no impact even on their most hardcore fans yeah. you know it's very difficult and even I mean people like uh, imagine it's such armchair activism yeah people consider imagine oh, I hate, I hate that and song. it's just like yeah I totally feel that but I'm not gonna do anything about it I hate that song but I know what you mean I, I remember having a sort of epiphany kind of moment when I was 17 or something going to the rock club where we used to go on a Friday night metros in Cardiff and um, like everybody suddenly stopping and sort of linking arms and like jumping up and down, like yelling, yeah, 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 and singing along to Design for Life by the Manic Street Preachers. Mm. So they're all going out, we don't talk about love, do we? No, we don't, yeah. You know, I'm in a Cardiff accent, yeah, in a London yeah. accent, but, but and I was just like, fuck. The, the, I mean, I the, the lyrics to this song are attacking exactly what's happening here. Like the irony of being really pissed up and, and, and maybe not talking about love very much. Oh God, yeah. And I was like, oh, hang on, political songs, I do want to write them, but it's mm. just such a hard thing to write, like to not sound preachy and to not, yeah, exactly, and to not, yeah. and to not, but at the same time, not be misunderstood as well. I yeah, mean, that's, that's, oh. So yeah, so it is, it is a tricky thing. And I do, I do take a lot of time to think about what I should write a song about and the and the lyric. I quite like the fact that when you write a song, you are constrained. I think it's important that a song rhymes. Because otherwise, it's just yeah. like, it's just a piece of prose. Otherwise, and I quite like the fact that you've got this constraint of trying to make it rhyme and fit. And as a result, 
mean, Frank Black of the Pixies yeah, yeah. has got a fantastic vocabulary and weaves all kinds of words. He's the only kind of artist which I've had to get a thesaurus out or a dictionary out to understand the lyrical content you know of the song. You know, there's the, I think that's very good. Yeah, I have a sort of, <laughs> I think I that's a, very good. I have a similar, yeah, I have a similar sort of feeling about Stephen Merrick from the, the magnetic fields. Like he, he is a master of unusual words rhyming. Like you, you do it very well in that, was it, I lost my hearing, I lost my vision, gonna make you dance like Joy Division. Mm. That's one of my favorite rhymes that you've got. <laughs> Uh, that that song again, I, I wrote out of I, I I hate clubs, and my girlfriend at the moment thinks that it's a relatively new thing. As so I'm like some kind of like old Victor Meldrew kind of character, but ever since a very very young age, it's been one of those things which I I guess I've been expected to do, and always had to go along to clubs. And I hate this meat market culture of everyone pissed up trying to have sex with randoms strangers, and it's just. It's just I find it quite abhorrent, and that I think I wrote that song while I was trapped in a club, and imagining what it would be like. It's bad enough for me, but for photosensitive epileptic people, that is, <laughs> which is what that song is written from the point of view of. That's and right. Not only is Strobe, it bad enough, it's strobes, isn't yeah, it? yeah. Not only am I trapped in this club, but then these horrible lights in my eyes are also potentially going to make me have an epileptic fit. I just thought it was, it was I was reading. I think I might have been reading The Doors of Perception by Aldous Huxley at the time. <laughs> wow. And he talks a little bit about strobe lights and their effects on on the brain. But the key that. to that song, though, is whilst it's about that stuff, you can dance to it. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's kind of having its cake and eat it in a very enjoyable way. Yeah. Like, just, I love it, to dance yeah. to that. Like, I, like, when you guys played that first night, I was like, wicked, I get to dance to this song live. I mean, it, yeah, it was a knowing irony that we did it, made it danceable. So... Um, it's about being trapped in a disco. Yeah, it is a disco number. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there you go. <laughs> but it's good. But it's about this time, uh, which is kind of the end of the interview, I asked people, have you got anything that you'd like to plug? Plug? Yeah. Oh. Uh, oh. <laughs> I feel like I should. Um, well, what's well, the, what's the uh, what's the how yeah. can they find Caution Horse? Okay, okay. That be I guess that'd be the easiest thing to plug. Uh, we have a band camp. Which unfortunately, really annoyingly, there's lots of bands cropping up called Caution Horses. There's one called And the Caution Horses. There's the Gypsy Kings have an album called And the Caution Horses. There's a Christian acoustic band from Ipswich called The Caution Horses. So I think if you type in Caution Horses, all, all one word, all one word, Bandcamp, a website comes up, and we've also got a MySpace, which is the MySpace.com backslash forward slash the slashy thing yeah I don't know which direction it goes in it's uh, forward slash forward slash thank you caution horses and um, I felt I really hate the fact that MySpace has died on its arse that was really good well uh, try out SoundCloud I recommend that that's where I think all the musicians are going now and mm. I, I, I'm I'm enjoying SoundCloud as a but I know what you mean it was nice it was an easy thing to have a place where it all was but now there's nobody there there's no real point in yeah. in it what if, how does how, how did they have so this monumental fall from grace Facebook Facebook yeah, but monument he, to Facebook yeah, nobody but, really cared about the musicians anyway like we were all on there trying to promote our stuff but everybody was on there to have social interactions with their friends so when Facebook came along they all jumped off to there yeah. and, and didn't care that the musicians could no longer try and promote their work to them because you know I, I guess that's a bit tiresome for the public I guess yeah I mean I know I was always like oh god this terrible band is sending me <laughs> messages and I, I don't like them 
yeah it's a funny thing when there's bands with a name that you've got as well like uh, my my electro pop duo is called the reactionaries and I, I really like the name but then there's just fucking loads of bands called the reactionaries so i'm like ah oh, bastards mm. well I'm, I'm currently trying to start a new band in brighton which is going to experiment with getting away a little bit from the guitars bass drum thing and i guess uh, this uh, again kind of maybe poking fun at pop culture by making ridiculously poppy songs that are also slightly abrasive this is the concept behind it and the band name that i absolutely love for which i would love to give to that is olivia neutron bomb which <laughs> i thought was just really funny and kind of summed up the, the ethos of what the band was trying to be and lo and behold there's an absolutely diabolical drum and bass ele ambient electronica band oh. from Australia called Olivia Neutron Bomb. But isn't it whoever gets the number one first gets to keep the, word, the name, isn't it? But then it, is, it does get very confusing. It can. If people go, what the fuck is this music if I try and look you up? So we might have to go for something different. I don't know, we'll see. Cool, well that'll be something that will appear at some point. And if by the time I air this, if it's, if it's let me know when you start it, and if it's before the end, I'll just add a little thing at the end. Mm. And find it find this one here cool, cool is that everything you want to plug or is there anything else? in caution horses james and andy have an incredible band where they go off in this massive musical journey without me holding them back and they're called casa bonita we're going to see them tonight we're going to go see them tonight and they are brilliant they weird tuning one guitar one drums that's it both do vocals and they put split the guitar up, put it through bass amps and guitar amps at the same time, weird frequency shift pedals, all kinds of things. Really exciting band doing something really new and interesting with their own sound, which is something you don't often come across. So I do recommend trying checking them out. Well that's cool. Well it's been a pleasure getting better acquainted with you, Russell. Uh, thanks very much for doing it. No, thank you for inviting me. Fantastic. The last thing I ask people to do is to say goodbye to the audience. Goodbye audience. Goodbye. Bye. You can find Getting Better Acquainted on Twitter, at UBA Podcast. You can find it on Facebook. It's Getting Better Acquainted. Have a search on Facebook and like it. Or you can find it on the website www.gettingbetteracquainted.co.uk You can also subscribe by searching on iTunes and subscribing to us that way. And on the Stitcher Smart Radio app that you can download for your smartphone from stitcher.com or through the App Store. There are lots of ways to get better acquainted.